Hello, friends. This is Darren Hayes of PigSceneDispatch.com. Before we take you to your favorite Sports History Network show, just want to tell you a little bit about some merch that you can pick up that represents your favorite SHN podcast. So far, there's t-shirts, coffee mugs, and even books from some of the authors that do podcasts right here on SHN. Who could buy something better than that than have the history right from the, the gentleman that you hear talking about it? But we also are adding things each and every day. And where's that store, may you ask? Well, it's at SportsHistoryNetwork.com. Up at the top, there is the SHN. HN merch button. Click on that. It'll take you right to the store and you can be representing your favorite podcast and show the world that, hey, on the swag that I'm using, it's the headquarters of sports yesteryear, Sports History Network, and my favorite podcaster, the Sports History Network store. Shop there today. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. On October 6, 1946, the city of Cleveland hit 90 degrees in October for the first time in recorded history. This maybe was not a coincidence by Mother Nature standards. However, for the sake of this week's story, I'm going to run with it because my theory is that this came from all of the hot air from the infuriated Cleveland football fans. And it all had to do with a place that, well, it's used to this kind of weather in October. Over there in Los Angeles. Welcome to the Football History Dude Podcast, where each episode is a journey back in time to learn about the rich history of the NFL. Your host is Arnie Chapman. Football is his passion, and he wants you to come along with him to explore the yesteryear of the gridiron. So hop on board his DeLorean, and let's get this baby up to 88 miles per hour. This time as we step off the DeLorean, the date is September 29th, 1946, and we are in the parking lot of the Los Angeles Memorial Coliseum. We're here to witness the first game of the season for the, now, Los Angeles Rams. But how does this tie back into the intro before the music? Well, let's just say, football fans of Los Angeles have the football fans of Cleveland to thank. But we'll get into that with this week's guest, Jim Selecki. Jim Selecki is the author of the award-winning book, The Cleveland Rams, The NFL Champs Who Left Too Soon. And he rides shotgun this week to share the wild and crazy story of the only team that won an NFL championship, but then played (laughs) in another city the next year. But first, we're going to get a quick bio from his website, and it goes as such. Jim Selecki is the 2016 winner of the Nelson Ross Award from the Professional Football Researchers Association for Outstanding Achievement in Pro Football Research and Historiography for his book, The Cleveland Rams, The NFL Champs Who Left Too Soon, 1936-1945. He is a fourth-generation native of Greater Cleveland, a one-time sports reporter for a daily newspaper, and a long-time business media editor and editorial director who is now semi-retired and owner of 40 Seasons Media LLC. His grandfather and father were in attendance at the 1945 NFL Championship game won by the Cleveland Rams. And now Jim is developing a forthcoming book about Art Modell. To learn more about Jim and links to his book, and also the website, you can head over to the show notes on your podcast player or straight to the website over at sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash Cleveland Rams. Also, while you're at it, if you enjoy this show, please rate and review us over in your podcast app. That is, of course, after you subscribe for free to the show by mashing the little subscribe button in your podcast player of choice. 
That way you get the hottest, freshest off the press episodes we'll each and every week. But for now, let's get into the heartbreaking story of Cleveland football fans with Jim Selecki. So that's really, I just want to kind of start from the beginning. I mean, let's go with the origin of the Cleveland Rams. How did it all start? Well, I'll tell you, you know, the uh, Cleveland had been a um, had had several unsuccessful attempts at professional football, believe it or not, and um, you know, it, which is funny now considering how uh, how big Cleveland is uh, for for professional football. But a, a bunch of businessmen got together, but led predominantly by two gentlemen. One one's name was uh, Homer Marshman. And uh, he was a local businessman, a, a lawyer, kind of a later to be kind of a failed or a, an unsuccessful politician. And then there was another gentleman by the name of Damon Buzz Wetzel, who had been uh, a graduate of Ohio State, had played a year at professional football, had played for the uh, the Bears, and then also the in Pittsburgh he had played. And after about a year, he pretty much decided, he said uh, – uh, Wetzel said, you know, this this playing is for the birds. I'm getting beat up. I'd like to be a, an, an owner. So they basically scrounged up enough money to get the Rams uh, into a new league called the American Football League, which is now called AFL2, uh, because, of course, as we know, there are multiple iterations of the American Football League. And that was how they started. Um, and they needed a name. And legend has it that uh, that Marshman, Wetzel were sitting around uh, in their in a, their office in downtown Cleveland. And legend has it that there were a few sports writers there. Um uh, one one of whom was John Dietrich of the of the Cleveland Plain Dealer, who would go on to cover the the Rams for years. And they said, "Well, we need a name, you know." And and uh, one of them said, um, "So, well, I'm really a big fan of the Fordham Rams, who at the time were were uh, were were pretty big. Um, you know, Vince Lombardi had come from uh, from the Fordham Rams." But then John Dietrich weighed in and said, "I like that name." He said, "That's short. It's concise. It'll fit in a headline." And uh, and that was pretty much it. And that was how the how the team began. Yeah, and then just kind of kept going from there. Like you said, they had multiple iterations of teams in Cleveland, but that wasn't the only city. Uh, unfortunately, back in the day, it was just, uh, well, pick your pick your poison. What's going to be in the newspaper this week? And speaking of one of them, uh, New York, um, there was kind of a correlation there. Dan Reeves, how, how did that all go about? Well, Dan Reeves, yes. Yeah, so that's you know kind of flash forward in there a little bit. You know, after the after the Rams jumped at the NFL in 1937 and had kind of this pretty mediocre uh, debut. In fact, they were one in ten in 1937, it was, and it was a record for futility in professional football in Cleveland that unfash, unfortunately would go unmatched until 2016 and 2017 when the Browns would go one fifteen and one in fifteen and zero oh and sixteen. But here's Dan Reeves, who is, as you said, was in New York City, was uh, was a native of New York, lived on, uh, grew up in Fifth Avenue, you know, was sort of to the manor born. His family was wealthy. Um, uh, he had, um, uh, they had money from a, a grocery chain called Daniel Reeves, and they sold that chain to uh, to Safeway. And I think for something like $15 million, which is just, oh, that'd be hundreds of millions of dollars today. And so Dan got, he was a young guy at the time. He was, I think, 29 years old, and, and he had all this money, and he really had t- two things he wanted to do with the money. One is he wanted to buy a seat on the New York Stock Exchange because he was a, he was a stockbroker, and B, he wanted to buy an NFL team. He had been um, had had uh, been out in LA in the early uh, 1920s and had seen while he was in college had seen USC in, in play at uh, the LA Coliseum in front of a hundred thousand fans and thought, oh my God. You know, you know, this is incredible. So he decided he loved football, wanted to buy a team, um, first uh, made overtures uh, to, to pick up what was then the, uh, the 
first the Pittsburgh Pirates, now the Pittsburgh Steelers, the Rooney family, of course, would not sell. Uh, looked at the Philadelphia Eagles, they would not sell. The Cleveland Rams came up for sale, and they, basically his, his response was, uh, close enough. Uh, so, <laughs> so he uh, bought the team from all the local owners in, in Cleveland. And within days, rumors were circulating that Reeves was not going to keep the team in Cleveland. He was going to move them to Boston. And um, and his thinking being, well, you know, A, it's New England. It's nearby. It's near my home of New York. And, you know, B, a, a big city, you know, even at the time bigger than Cleveland. And Cleveland was one of the biggest cities then. And he was going to do that. But two things happened. One is that George Preston Marshall who had moved the, the, the what was known as the Washington football team. Uh, the Redskins had moved out of, of Boston and down to Washington and found fantastic success in Washington. Um, never, just, just as you said, I mean, just, just like the Rams were, you know, hit, were uh, greeted with kind of a lot of apathy in Cleveland. So the Redskins have been greeted with a lot of apathy in Boston. So George Preston Marshall had said, don't even bother. Don't even bother taking your team to Boston. Boston's not a big football town which is laughable now when you think about the Patriots' success. But it was also that there was a big letter-writing campaign, and there was a, um, a lot of civic energy even then that grew up around the Rams and, and kind of prevailed upon Reeves and said, hey, you know, you need to keep your team here. And, uh, and that was really how the Rams stayed in, in Cleveland in 1941. But, of course, as, as you know from, you know, from, from the book, <laughs> that, was not the, that was not the last <laughs> for, for, for very long after that. You mentioned this doesn't necessarily have anything to do with football, but he wanted to buy a seat on the New York Stock Exchange. What, what does that even mean? <laughs> that's a good question. Uh, I'm not really sure exactly what that means, but that, that's an excellent question. I, I guess probably at that time, that was how you got access. There's probably somebody in your audience who would know better than us. But yeah, that's the legend that I saw. Is that Those are the two things. And in fact, he went on to be a, continue to be a stockbroker for years after that. Uh, when he moved to L.A., um, Reeves, uh, he went all Hollywood, as, as many people said. He went from wearing suits and ties, you know, to that 50s, 40s and 50s style of, you know, of open open collar shirts. And but he still did have a, a stock brokerage um, even in L.A. And that, that continued to be, you know, a source of his income. Yeah, I guess maybe I'm I don't know. Nowadays, we can just go on our phone and we can we can exchange stocks. So it was probably different back then. And yeah. I would think that just everything was different. You know, the whole the good old boys with the you, you have the money and buy a team and league. And now there's a lot of different kinds of restrictions. Uh, there were some True. other things that happened. I mean, what are some other um, events around the Cleveland Rams? Well, one thing that happened is in 1943, they were um, um you know, of course, the war was 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 what the World War Two was two years in, and um, and there was a, you know a, a lot of problems for all the sports leagues. Um, you know, a lot of the players kept getting drafted into the war. Um, you know, the fans, of course, were not turning out as much as you would expect. There were even ta- there was even talk about suspending you know suspending the, all the sports leagues completely during the war. And uh, and actually, President uh, Franklin Roosevelt said, you know, you you need to continue on with with this because this is diversion, you know, in a time of, of you know, in a trying time, not unlike our times today, right, where the where the sports leagues have continued to go on during a pandemic. You know, it's like people need this entertainment. So the leagues were all prevailed upon. No, keep going. But Dan Reeves had an idea in 1943. He was he was continuing to lose players into the military. 
But just as importantly in Cleveland, he looked out, you know, at the time, as, as you know, you know, Major League Baseball was predominant in, in sports. I mean, you know, the NFL, professional football was considered very much kind of a second tier sport. So the Indians reigned supreme in, uh, in Cleveland. Then, and, and Bob Feller got, you know, the star Hall, Hall of Fame pitcher of the Indians got drafted um, into the Navy. And the following season, the Indians uh uh, attendance just plummeted by hundreds of thousands. And so Reeves kind of saw the writing on the wall at the time and said, boy, I could really, you know, I could really take a bath in the coming year. So he went to his fellow uh, league owners and said, um, you know, and he was among the younger league owners. He wasn't honestly very popular with the other owners. Uh, this was confirmed to me by his own son, um, who I interviewed for the book. He said, yeah, he was considered a bit of a maverick. He was younger. He was East Coast. You know, where a lot of the league owners at the time were kind of, you know, many of them had been, some of them had been players themselves, like, you know, Curly Lambeau and, you know, and George Hallis. Um, they saw him with a little bit of suspicion. And uh, but here he is, this Sharpie, and he goes and he said, hey, you know, I'm going to suspend for a, a year thinking they were going to follow him in lockstep. Well, much to his great surprise, they said, we're not <laughs> we're going to continue to play. And um, so. Uh, what happened there is that um, Reeves almost immediately realized that that was, you know, he had made an error there. But um, what happened was that the team pretty much got split up and some players went to, you know, to some teams, some players that went to other teams. In fact, uh, one of their wide receiver, Jim Benton. Uh, end up going to the uh, Chicago bears and won a championship with, with, with the, with the bears. So, um, but so an interesting thing about the Rams in 1943 is they were literally the only sports franchise that decided that they were going to suspend operations during World War II. You know, no other major league baseball team did that. You know, at the time, hockey was was, you know, was there. And uh, and so Reese stood alone in doing that. And um, and uh, uh, that and as I mentioned, immediately saw the error of his ways. And within two months, he was like, I got to get back into this league. And so by 1944, sure enough, the Rams were, were back in. And they were then starting a very uh, almost a different era that would lead to their championship in 1945. Yeah, let's talk about that championship in 1945, something that uh, Cleveland fans are hoping for this year, I believe. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Uh, yeah, and, and you know, and it, and it came almost as much out of the blue. Um, you know, here, here the Rams have been, you know, at best. In fact, they never, up until that point, starting in 1937 in the NFL, and right up until uh, and through the 1944 season, they had never had a winning record. They had been, they had reached 500, but they had never had a winning record. But there was a general manager who came on board and named Chili Walsh, and. Um, uh, so he began to very stealthily start to draft players. He he, he had the foresight to, to his credit. He had the foresight to begin to realize, you know, and, and, that, and in that year that he had off when the Rams had elected to, to suspend operations, he had kind of the luxury to begin to kind of think about, okay, who are the players coming out of college? Who are the players going to be coming home for the war? And so began to build a team in 1944 that was pretty good. But what was really took him over the top was that he drafted a quarterback out of UCLA named, of course, Bob Waterfield. And Bob Waterfield had been a little bit of a dark horse draft pick. Um, he had been seen as, as very talented at UCLA, but UCLA, UCLA at the time was considered kind of a second fiddle team in, in California to USC. And he was also known to be a little bit temperamental, um, a little moody. You know, not really leadership material uh, per se. And yet another fact about him that was confirmed, you know, to me by his own son, who I also interviewed for the for the book. You know, that was just the way he was. He was a laconic kind of guy. 
you know. But he was uh, incredibly talented, an incredibly talented passer. And so when the uh, the Rams started went, went to training camp in 1945 in Bowling Green, Ohio, you know, the the uh, Chili Walsh, the general manager, he brought in his brother Adam to be the to be the head coach. Here's two Los Angeles natives, by the way, uh, who are beginning to run the Cleveland Rams. And, and of course, then with their star quarterback, Bob Waterfield, who again is from Southern California. So there's a third piece of the puzzle. And of course, Bob Waterfield is, is, is married to Jane Russell, who is one of the top Hollywood uh, movie stars at the time. So you got all this kind of L.A. allure that's kind of coming into the Cleveland Rams franchise. But they go into training camp and they're beginning to realize, you know, we're, we're pretty good here. You know, and sure enough, they were. They went. They went nine and one. Got into the uh, not got into the playoffs. You know, then back back then, and it was only the thirteenth championship uh, game of all time in the NFL. Faced the Washington Redskins um, against uh, the very famous Sling and Sammy Baugh, who is considered you know now a Hall of Fame quarterback. And uh, and believe it or not, coming into that game, were considered to be were considered to be um, the favorites. You know, some people have since said, oh, you know, the Rams were underdogs because the Redskins were one of the premier organizations at the time. But really, the Rams had looked pretty solid, and they came in as slight favorites in that game. And it's an, an interesting uh, story about that game. Um, the one is that the weather was absolutely, you know, terrible. Um, and, the, and anybody who's ever lived in Cleveland or ever has, you know, spent much time in Cleveland knows how capricious the weather here can be. The week before the game, and I just read this the other day, they said, well, oh, the game was sparsely attended. Well, actually, for given the fact that it was zero degrees, it was actually fairly well attended. It was there were thirty-two thousand people who were in the in the in the in Cleveland Stadium on the frozen Lake Erie, and really what had happened was they sold about thirty thousand of those tickets the week before when it was about 60 degrees in Cleveland, and they thought, "Wow, this is good. We are going to break all sorts of attendance records." Um, you know, for, for, for an NFL championship game. But then, you know, the weather rolled in to Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, a cold front moved in. It started to snow. Snow started to, to pack the field. They try to put straw down the field to kind of, uh, you know, to kind of uh, insulate the field. And the uh, ticket sales just dried up. Um, you know, many people opted not even to even uh, go into uh, to go to the game. Many people had tickets and, and opted to stay home. Uh, my own father and grandfather were at, were at that. Sorry about that. My my own father and grandfather were at that game, and um, and they had said that at the time they said that um, you know they they had considered not even going to the game because it was just so cold. But they had free tickets, so so that's what gave them the uh, you know the impetus to go to the game. Yeah, I mean, a chance to go to a championship game is, of course. Then again, hindsight, knowing what would not not knowing what would have happened. I mean, not too long after the championship game, uh, <laughs> how how did your father and and uh, grandfather react to what happened after the championship game? Well, I'll tell you, you know. First of all, you know, even reaction to the game itself, you know, and, and maybe we'll talk about that for just a second because it was an incredible game. Um, you know, my dad was 10 at the time. And, and the only reason why they were at the game was because my father was a restaurant owner and a vendor had said, hey, you want some <laughs> tickets to the game? And my grandfather said, well, sure, I guess I'll take my son, you know. And so my dad remembers it was so cold um, that the straw, I mentioned that there was straw in the field that they, they used to insulate the field. And then be, right before the game, you know, the morning of the game, they kind of moved the straw to the side of the field. And it was so cold that many people took that straw, took it up into the stands and be, be, believe it or not, and it's just probably people who know the dog pound, et cetera, 
probably won't be surprised by this, but they lit it on fire to warm their hands. And my dad says one of his recollections is that his father said, hey, don't you know, stay away from the fire in the stands here. Just stay here next to me. Uh, but it was an incredible game in that um, what really spelled the difference in the game was that uh, there was a safety that happened. Uh, Sammy Baugh what was deep in his own territory, backed up of what, what today or what was in old Cleveland Stadium was the dog pound. Um, and uh, through a pass um, to his left to a guy who was a receiver was streaking down the left sideline and uh, thought for sure he had a touchdown. In fact, the receiver said, oh, man, you know, that was a, a surefire touchdown. And said so the ball bounced off the upright skittered back into the end zone and went out of bounds and everybody just kind of froze, you know, and said, well, you know, what exactly does that mean? And, um, in fact, my father recalls that as well. He says, you know, I said, I remember, he said, I remember just sitting there for a minute or two. Nobody knew what had happened. And then they put two points on the scoreboard for Cleveland and it was a safety. And that ended up being the, uh, the margin of the game. The, the, the Rams won, uh, by uh, the score of 15 to 14. And uh, yeah, in the aftermath of that game, very interesting what happened with the Rams. Because you would think, so so three weeks later, Dan Reeves announces um, that he's moving the team to Los Angeles, which you know just really kind of rollicks, um, you know the the whole league. Um, you know, this was something that, first of all, that you would move a championship team three weeks after, you know, from the city three weeks after they won, and hence why I have you know the name. In the book, you know, the subtitle is the NFL champs who left too soon. The Rams as a franchise were just cresting in terms of, of, of competitiveness. The city of Cleveland was just was just beginning to crest in, in building interest in professional football. And um, so, so but, but the fact that, that the Rams would move out west where no team at that time, there was not a single major league sports franchise west of the Mississippi River. The fact that they would move that far west was just considered insane. And... Um, but here in Cleveland, the reaction was a little bit blunted because um, there was a newspaper strike. It pretty much shut down all the major newspapers here in Cleveland. There, were, I think there were three or four of them at the time. Shut down a couple newspapers in Akron, just south of here. Um, and um, and so what happened, and as we know, radio and everything else was kind of built at the time on the news that happened in the newspapers. So it wasn't even reported in the newspapers. So as I, as I talk about it some length in the book, it kind of blunted that reaction. Um, the other thing that happened was that the Cleveland Browns were, of course, coming on the scene. The Browns were supposed to start uh, play in the All-America Football Conference in 1945. They kind of smartly said, you know, let's hold off for a year because our players are still coming back from the war. Um, so they held off. But they're coming in 46. So Clevelanders were thrilled. They're like, you know, they were like, you know, OK, so we're losing the Rams, which really is not very good. You know, and how dare they would do that? But at least we got the Browns, and we're hearing they're going to be pretty good. And 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 Arnie asked about how my father reacted. My, my, here's how my father remembers it. He said, all I remember is that the Rams, I went to the Rams championship game in 1945. It was cold. It was snowy. It was kind of boring. He said, and then he, the next year he was at the debut game of the Cleveland Browns against the Miami Seahawks in Cleveland Stadium on an August night. And as you probably know, the AEFC used a white football at the time. Uh, and it was um, and it was a warm night under the lights. And my dad said, wow. He, you know, as, as I say in the, in the book, for my dad, it was like almost going from black and white to a Technicolor sort of movie. He, he was immediately enthralled by the Browns. And that's honestly what happened with a lot of Clevelanders. You know, when, when they won those that first championship in 1946, you know, the Rams are kind of quickly 
you know, very quickly forgotten. In fact, as I talk about in the book, forgotten maybe far faster and far more than than anybody might have reasonably kind of expected. You know, I mean, you mentioned how they they went out on a because of the paper strike. I wonder how much of that had to do with they already had intentions and they were going to do it later, but then they're like, "Ooh, here's our chance to get out quick and cleaner." Eh, we don't care. We're just going to leave regardless. And then, speaking of that too, with the uh, with the Browns coming in, I mean, there was a pretty famous and uh, let's say productive quarterback that came with that team too, huh? Yeah, exactly. You know, if you yeah, with the Browns, you're talking about Otto Graham, of course. So yeah, so so the Browns come in and they, um, you know, and so you have a now you have the two franchises here, right? One one two franchises, both with both with Cleveland lineages. And they're set up to be these two, sort of two superstar franchises in the late 40s and, and heading into the 50s. Very comparable. They have, um, in some respects, you know, you got the, the Rams are in the Los Angeles Coliseum, which seats, you know, about 100,000. The Browns are in Cleveland Stadium, seats about 80,000. You know, they get these big name kind of glamorous quarterbacks. And in fact, they played each other, the Browns and the Rams, three times for the championship in the early 50s. And, uh, and of course, the Browns won two of them. And, and it's interesting to even look at the coverage back when the Rams came back in 1950. And unless anybody thinks that there was no, um, you know, that there was no umbrage that was held against the Rams. Uh, oh, it was. You know, when, they, when the Rams came back here in 1950 to play, to play the Browns for the NFL championship game, it, it, it was like they were treated, you know, and rightfully so. They were treated as, you know, as, as traitors. They were, you know, people, people didn't forget that quickly in four or five years uh, that the Rams had just kind of pulled up stakes. And the other thing is that um, the, while the Browns were great, you know, the All-America Football Conference was, after a couple of years, was found to be a pretty – you know, a pretty um, inferior league compared to the National Football League, and um, and and, and, and f- frankly, and it may be surprising, but you know, uh, Browns fans after a couple years, as we know, the Browns won the championship in all four years of the All America Football Conference before it folded, and by year three, it was getting a little bit old. You know, so they were kind of like, so they were well, you know, they're really raring, you know, raring to get back into the big time. Even then the national football league was considered the national league. It, it was, it was the big leagues and uh, you know, and with autogram and all those great players in the fifties uh, you know, Cleveland was glad to be back. Yeah. I mean, at least they had a team, like you said, just kind of like trains in the night passing. And now here comes the Browns versus the Rams. And like you said, there was a lot of, uh, I don't want to say Bad blood. I just had to look up that word umbrage. I didn't know what that meant, but now I understand. <laughs> but now I got you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So a writer word, you know. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. I mean, but why why LA? Why why go so far west when there was no other teams before? Yeah, that's a good question. You know, and and, and, and of course of course, even even at the time, California was very populous even at the time. I mean, it was um it was the fifth largest city in uh in um, in the United States at the time, Cleveland, believe it or not, was sixth. Um, but but you know, I ca- I came across a, a, a Life magazine story, um, and actually that was a nice feature on Bob Waterfield and his wife Jane Russell. And you know, it's kind of a kitsch- kitschy photo, you know, photo session that was taken within League Park, you know, where Jane Russell was holding the football for Bob so he can kick the ball, you know, when those kind of kitschy mid forties uh, photo. Uh, sessions. But anyway, uh, another story in that same issue talked about how horrible the traffic in Los Angeles was. So, you know, so again, lest anybody thinks that was a later thing, you know, California was already booming at the time. And of course, college football was huge out there. You know, USC was considered, a, you know, a preeminent 
uh, you know, football program, you know, one of the top football pr- programs in the, in the country at the time. But what was interesting is that um, um, it, it was it, Major League Baseball had not yet made it out to California. And, 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 and the, the way the NFL owners thought at the time was they were like, we're only going to put a franchise in a city where there's already a Major League Baseball franchise. So it's kind of it would be you know incredible for people today to think that the NFL could be in such a secondary position to Major League Baseball. But that was indeed the case then. You know, so the NFL kind of just followed in the, you know, in the wake of Major League Baseball, you know, and which is why, as you probably know, why today, you know, we have the Chicago Cubs and then we have the Chicago Bears. You know, we have the we have the Detroit Tigers and we have the Detroit Lions. You know, it was always kind of like, you know, kind of a me too kind of thing. And um, but there was no Major League Baseball franchise out there at the time. And so, the you know, the NFL was like, well, you know, we're not going to go out there. It's not that market's not been developed or cultivated. Um, you know, by Major League Baseball. Of course, the other thing is just flat out just sheer logistics. You know, the NFL at the time was kind of a parochial league, kind of is still to this day, you know, kind of very insular a little bit, uh, you know, very almost overly self-confident. And it was mostly centered, of course, in the Northeast and in the Great Lakes. And those guys were fairly frugal guys. You know, they were like, that's insanity. You know, how much much is that going to cost for us to take a team all the way out to Los Angeles to play you guys? You know, the All-America Football Conference was starting up. And they were doing, they were like spending money, like, you know, like drunken sailors by the, by the, you know, in the, the eyes of the, uh, the NFL, you know, all America football conference had, uh, you know, as I mentioned, they had a team in Miami, they had two teams in California, they had the LA Dons, they had the San Francisco 49ers. And they announced that they were going to do this crazy thing, which is they were going to actually send their players to games using airplanes, you know, which is the NFL was like, that seemed like a, you know, a ridiculous sort of extravagance. Um, and it's kind of, so, and it, but at the time, Dan Reeves, as he tried to talk them into moving out to LA, out to California saying, Hey guys, you know, there was already a westward movement, even then of the population in the United States, California really boomed in world war two. Cause a lot of the um, defense contracts were done out there. So as he tried to con- convince them why the NFL needed to be out there, you know, he said, and this is always cracks me when I come across this. He reassured me, he said, look, I don't know why you guys are making a big deal about this. You know, the train ride from Chicago to LA only takes 45 hours. So, you know, <laughs> so two days out there, two days back, what do you guys complaining about? You know, but it was just, I mean, it's just, it's a lot of those things. It's cultural. It was financial. It was, you know, a reddit or kind of a reticence to go into a market that had not yet been proven by major league baseball. Great, Scott. I'm going to mash that pause button real quick and tell you about a new segment where I'm going to promote another sports history podcast on the Sports History Network, which is the headquarters for your favorite sports yesteryear. This week, we get to hear from Darren Hayes over at Pigskin Dispatch. Hello, my football friends. This is Darren Hayes of the PigskinDispatch.com, and I'm here to tell you about the Pigskin Daily History Dispatch, which is a podcast that covers the anniversaries of gridiron events throughout history on a day-to-day basis through the football history headlines. As bonus coverage each day, the legends of the Pro and Football Halls of Fame are remembered on the anniversaries of their birth, and their careers are highlighted in tribute to what they brought to the gridiron. Please join us daily on the Sports History Network, PigskinDispatch.com, or your favorite podcast provider to bring you the memories of the gridiron one day at a time in the Pigskin Daily History Dispatch Podcast. All right, let's take a hit of that 1.21 gigawatts and get back into this thing. Yeah, I mean, I'm looking at the PowerPoint that you use here, and the NFL in 1946, where it shows all those teams 
totally clustered up in the northeast and then the one way over there to the west, uh, the only one west of Mississippi. Uh, and then, of course, the expansion thereafter. Um, that was what I just I was curious about the whole you, you mentioned that, yeah, they weren't they were kind of hesitant to putting a team over there. I mean, what did he ultimately do or what was the result of how he was able to convince them to go out there? Well, what he did was the, the main rationale that he used, because the owners were very much opposed to it. You know, when, when he went in there, he and it was a very it was a very tumultuous uh, NFL owners meeting it happened in January in 1946 in New York City. Very tumultuous. Again, I mentioned that, you know, Dan Reeves was not a real popular guy with those owners, um, you know, and, and he, you know, their attitude was, you know, how dare you kind of a young whippersnapper tell us how to how to run our league, you know, and but Reeves. um Really, you know, he, he used everything he had to bear. He said, he said, look, he said, first of all, the All-America Football Conference, you know, they, they already had one defection. They already had a team called the New York Yankees, believe it or not, that had jumped from the NFL after 1945 and jumped over to the All-America Football Conference. So they already had one defection. And um, so he kind of gave that kind of veiled hints, like, you know, I might, I might jump, to, I might do the same thing. The other thing is he said is he said, you know, do you guys think it's smart that we're going to kind of open up our Western flank, so to speak, to the All-American Football Conference? We're going to let them put, put two franchises out there, you know, and, and we're not going to have one. So, you know, so his rationale also was, you know, let's get let's get a team out there. Let's let's not let's not just, you know, sort of concede that booming sort of, you know, area of the country. And uh, and that was pretty much it. And the other thing is, he said uh, he, he he even he even threatened he might move the team to Dallas. You know, I mean, I, I have a friend who uh, who's a, grew up a Cowboys fan, and I said, could you imagine if the Rams had been your team and instead of the Cowboys? And he kind of he kind of shuddered at the thought of you know <laughs> that, that being the case. Um, and in fact, and the other thing Reeves even explored was um, uh, a potentially a move to Cincinnati. You know, decades before the the Bengals began there, so he, I mean, he he was just bound and determined. He was like, I am, I'm going to L.A. Nothing's going to stop me. You know, and and that's what happened. Now, there's one thing that stood in his way, and he wanted that L.A. Coliseum. He was just bedazzled by this hundred thousand seats. And I don't know if you've ever been there. It 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 certainly is a monstrous you know stadium. It's up close. It's not nearly as glamorous. I was at a game there a few years ago, and not nearly as glamorous. I mean, it's some you know some bad. You know some bad uh, 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 emails from uh, LA fans, but but it is you know kind of a it is kind of a historic park, obviously, and a, you know stadium. And um, but was what was standing in his way though was that um, as the Rams moved out there was there was a, a group of black sports writers, and they had been for years have been agitating over the fact, and rightfully so, that the NFL had had been uh, segregated since the early 1930s. They had stopped signing black players even though the nfl um it's it's heritage began with black players i mean the very first uh, nfl champion in 1920 was the akron pros and they had a black coach but by the early 30s there was kind of an unwritten you know unspoken sort of rule that the nfl owners are not going to sign black players and i asked joe horrigan um at the pro football hall of fame who's now the retired historian, but, you know, he was the guy who knew everything at the Pro Football Hall of Fame. I said, why is that? He said, well, probably a number of reasons. He said, but I think more than anything, it's that in in the midst of a depression, you know, and these guys were not very open-minded at the time, of course, uh, but, you know, as he said, they did not want to be seen as if they were keeping, that they were 
uh, keeping jobs from white from white players. So that was the thing. So the, the NFL went for about, you know, kind of a shameful sort of almost 15 years without a black player. Well, these black sports writers have been agitating. And so they saw their opportunity when Reeves was moving out there. So they went in front of the Coliseum Commission. Um, which you know decided who was going to have access to the to the to the to the Coliseum, which was then as it is now run by USC, and these black sports writers said, um, and this was the era, by the way, of Pl- of Plessy versus Ferguson, you know, which was the Supreme Court ruling of separate versus equal that wouldn't be overthrown, I think, until 1954. So they went in there and they said, look, so it's separate, separate, you know, separate but equal. And they said, um, okay, well, if that's going to be an all-white team that's playing in the L.A. Coliseum, okay, so the Coliseum is for the all-white team, where's the, where's the stadium, where's the public stadium for the all-black team? So, the, of course, the commission didn't like to hear that. They didn't want to have to determine another stadium, build another stadium. And, by the way, they also didn't want any any sort of a kerfuffle. They were trying actively to lure East Coast teams out west, you know. And um, so they basically said, that's a good point. They turned at that point, they turned to Chili Walsh, the general manager of the Rams now, of course. And they said, would you agree um, to sign a black player? And he said, absolutely. You know, not kind of thinking that maybe, you know, that'll just kind of get him through the situation here. Well, no, that that they held him to it. You know, the, the sports writers held him to it. And what he did was to honor that he hired, signed a player. Um, who had been from, from Southern California, Kenny Washington, and had played for UCLA, was a fantastic player, was never signed by the NFL, and had spent years um, just kind of playing for semi-pro teams. By this time, he was in his early 30s. Signed Kenny Washington, broke the color barrier, um, decided, well, you know, he needed a roommate, quote-unquote. So they hired another black player who was Woody Strode, who would go on to be a Hollywood actor. And and that, because of all that, because of the Rams moving out of Cleveland, moving to L.A., wanting to get into the L.A. Coliseum, that was how the NFL was reintegrated. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, going back to Joe's comments about the uh, using the excuse as a Great Depression, I never even heard that one before. Yeah, yeah I know. That, that was an interesting one. Yeah, but it makes sense, you know. Um, you know, and just one other thing there too, is you probably know the other Cleveland connection here is that of course, at the same time that, um, the Rams are integrating their team, of course, the Cleveland Browns are doing the same thing as well. Um, you know, they, they're, it's just as they're emerging an all America football conference. So they signed Marion Motley and Bill Willis. So that sport is also integrated. And oh, by the way, that sets up what? To, for, to happen the following year, emboldened by by the fact that these two teams were able to reintegrate, what happens then? Of course, Jackie Robinson gets signed by the by the Dodgers, and that and then now the reintegration of sports happens all over the place. So yeah, and that I I didn't realize the story behind Kenny Washington as far as like you said to be able to get into the uh, Coliseum there. That's something that's definitely new to this uh, podcast. <laughs> Yeah, it's an interesting story, you know, and, and that's the thing that I, you know, as I, as I researched the book, it just became more and more obvious, like, you know, this is a pretty important event, you know, in the grand scheme of, of you know, of sports history. And I was, and I was astounded as I began to research, I'm, I was like, surely there's got to be a book on this team and, you know, and, and the impact of, of the, of this team starting in Cleveland and moving to LA. And there was not. So I was, I was glad to see that I kind of filled that, filled that void, you know. 
I think you kind of jumped the gun on my next question. It was going to be like, what was your passion to write this book? Uh, did you have a personal passion from being from Cleveland? Yeah, I did. It was, you know, it's a little bit of forgotten history, um, you know, which is, um, which, you know, kind of astounds me. And, and, and as I talk about in the, in the, uh, uh, in the intro to the book, um, what really got me going was back, you know, as you probably know, when, when the, when Art Modell moved the Browns out of Cleveland in 1995, that, that was, that was a pretty, you know, that was a pretty traumatic thing for all of us here. And, you probably remember at the time, right around the time the Browns were moving out and going to Baltimore, the Rams were doing the reverse commute and they were moving back to the Midwest and they went to St. Louis. So, which, you know, it, for those of us, you know, in two fell Midwestern cities, it, you know, it seemed, it, it almost made it kind of worse in some respects, but, um, but I, I, business was taking me a lot at that time to St. Louis. And so I would add, they'd talk about the Rams. Oh, we're so glad to have the Rams here. And I would say, you know, okay, let me just, you know, know, test you a little bit here. Where did the Rams franchise start? And they said, Los Angeles. (laughs) And I I kept saying, you know, it, it wasn't, it was Cleveland, you know? And I was just like, you know, if you, as I would say, you know, I would say, if you're going to have a pro football team here, yeah, know it's history, you know? And, and I will say, um, that Los Angeles Rams fans, I'll tell you, they really know their, their, their team's history, more so than St. Louis, believe it or not. The Rams really cherish that, um, you know, the Cleveland origins. But Donnie just saw just, just the other day, you know, the, I think the, what the, uh, the Giants were going to play the Rams. And the Giants coach was saying, well, I was, I was shocked to see this because this was not but this was not common knowledge five or six years ago. It seemed to me when I started researching the book, but he said, well, as it's, you know, it's, as, as we all know, you know, he's talking about the long history of the Rams. He said, they're the only NFL franchise to win championships in three different cities. And I was like, wow, I'm, I'm glad that story's getting out, you know? So of course, Los Angeles, Cleveland, and St. Louis. So that was, that was a key part of the passion for me um, was to kind of get that, you know, get that message out. And then the other thing too, is just, you know, just as a, from a writer's standpoint, um, probably in most people's eyes, the Rams just seem on the face of it. They're, they're, they're just so associated with Los Angeles, you know, I mean, just their blue and, you know, yellow colors. And you know, as I mentioned in my introduction, you know, growing up, just, you know, thinking of, you know, watching Merlin Olsen and Roman Gabriel and, you know, uh, you know, those players, and, you know, seeing the palm trees of Southern California. It, 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 I didn't really learn until I was maybe 12 or 13 that the Rams had started in Cleveland. I was like, really? I, like I had no idea. Um, and then just the fact that Bob Waterfield and then also Jane Russell, who for, you know, for those of who don't know, but I mean, she's, she was as famous in her time as Marilyn Monroe, you know, the fact that they would have been affiliated with this Cleveland, you know, with the team when it was in Cleveland was such an interesting thing for me. So to, so to get into the bottom of that was, you know, another passion of what caused me to write the book. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned how like growing up, it was the LA for me, actually my era, <laughs> I only knew him as the St. Louis Rams for the most part. I didn't really, I was too young for the, for them to move. And then when they did move back to LA for me, it was like, Oh, they're moving to LA and they're moving back to LA. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. They seem, you know, they always seem like it's always seemed to me that they, they're much more of an LA team, you know, in, in my mind. And, 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 I, and that's another, another thing as I began to research the book, I had kind of an, an inkling that they were going to move you know, to LA, it was just, if you just kind of read between the lines and I even asked Joe Horrigan, when I interviewed him, I said, what do you think? You know, the Rams, you know, this is a couple of years before they moved. And I said, what do you think? You think the Rams are going to move? He goes, nah, I said, I think they're staying in St. Louis. I was like, really? Cause I'm thinking they're going to. So that really even kind of got me, gave me motivation to get the book done. 
because uh, you know it came out in late '16, just um, you know, just as the Rams were on the cusp of moving. So that that was kind of driving me a little bit as well, just to kind of get that out there, you know, to hopefully capitalize a little bit on that on that you know that backstory in Los Angeles. Yeah, I mean, Cleveland fans having multiple teams ripped away from them. I guess Detroit fans. De- they have in a way, but it's just because the teams they folded. I mean, we I, I just after starting this podcast is when I found out that the Detroit Lions are actually the Portsmouth Spartans before. I would I didn't know any of any of this stuff history. It's kind of unique and interesting, and I'm glad that with the NFL 100 and the hundredth birthday, a lot of this stuff is being out there more. And maybe that's why you know they're talking about it more in the the games yeah. and such. I, I would hope so. I mean, it's a fascinating history. In fact, by Portsmouth, if you ever get a chance, if you're ever in Ohio, that stadium is still there. So if you're ever interested in walking in there, I, uh, you know, I, I, ha- I happen upon it in Southern Ohio. And um, it's fascinating to go in there and walk around that stadium and think that an NFL team played there, you know, in the late 20s and early 30s. But yeah, the, you know, that's another thing that Joe Horgan said, you know, that, and I agree with him. He said, you know, he said, he said more than baseball, you know, for sure. You know, the NFL pro football does not honor its history nearly as much. And, and you know, which and, it, and it, I think it's, it's kind of man, manifested when people say, well, what, you know, when, when did the NFL really become? What's the modern era of the NFL? You know, and um, I mean, baseball, as we know, they go, you know, if something happened in 1925, it's as relevant as it happened in, you know, 2005, as far as baseball fans are concerned. But, you know, football fans, you know, a lot of football fans like, well, that was just the era of the leather helmets, you know, Um, and it's it's really unfortunate. And I I agree with you. Um, This 100th anniversary has been great. It's been blunted a little bit, I know, because in Canton, um, they had a whole bunch of stuff that they were going to do this year. you know, around the hundredth anniversary, and it all just kind of, of course, got put on hold from by the pandemic, which is really unfortunate. But you know, I'm hopeful that that there's going to be more and more fans, and I think younger fans really like the kind of old school. They like to hear about a lot of the you know the heritage and and the, and the early origins of, of the sport. You know, because there's some really fascinating stories there. Yeah, different, definitely a lot of different things that you just kind of sit back and I don't know. I'm a big history fan too, so you just putting myself in the shoes of the ones that came before. And uh, speaking of putting myself in the shoes that came before, I have a little question that I ask everybody. If you could see me, I'm giving you the virtual keys to my DeLorean right now. And uh, (laughs) you can go back and point in any Cleveland Rams moment and you can go, but not the championship because that's an easy giveaway. Maybe something else. Like what would you do with your, your father and your grandfather? What kind of game or person you talk to? What would you do there? Well, I'll tell you, you know, the game when the Rams clinched, the, the, when they clinched uh, their spot in the title game. So this is not the title game. So it was the game prior to that. That was also an incredible game. And uh, and I'd like to go back to that. It, and it happened in Detroit. And they, uh, they they beat the Lions in Detroit in what was on Briggs Field or, you know, Tiger Stadium. And it was on Thanksgiving Day and also a ridiculously cold day. Um Bob Waterfield had been banged up considerably, not only like Baker Mayfield was yesterday, got banged up considerably in the ribs. Uh, they taped him up almost like a mummy. They um, gave him, I think, you know, cortisone shots or whatever. And they kind of set him out into this kind of really, really cold, crappy weather. And uh, he threw, you know, which is now um, considered, you know, one of the great games of all time. He threw 10 passes to uh, Jim Benton 
for I think like 300 yards or something. It's still one of the all-time great performances. And that's another thing. You know, Jim Benton was kind of, you know, he was this receiver for the Rams. And he was kind of this acrobatic sort of wide receiver. And, and, and in fact, his, his, his receptions, uh, or I should say passing yardage, is still, I think, number fifth in the record book um, from that game. So yeah, the Rams beat the uh, beat beat the uh, Lions. Actually, made the title game. Sh- shocked everybody in Cleveland. And um, I interviewed um, the, the 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 widow of one of the players on the team. And she said she said she was on the train back to Cleveland. And she said, "Let me tell you something." She said that was a party. <laughs> <laughs> I bet, yeah. <laughs> and she said in her in her Virginia Tidewater ac- uh, accent, which which is great. So, uh, yeah, that would be the game to go because that was really the game that set them up then for the, uh, you know, for the for the championship. And I think they, they had real confidence by, by, by that point. You know, they, they pretty much thought that, in fact, it, it was, it, the name of the player was Jim Gillette, whose son Walker played in the NFL, too. I interviewed him as well. And uh, Jim Gillette actually made a prediction. He, he told the hometown paper back in Virginia, he said, I predict we're going to beat the Redskins. And which suffice to say right there in Virginia, just, you know, right by Washington, you know, didn't go over very well. <laughs> right. And, uh, uh, but they were confident, you know, the Rams, after beating the Lions, they thought, they thought that's it. We're going to win the championship. Do you have any other interviews for the book that stuck out in your mind? Like, this is a story that I can't hear anywhere else. Um, you know, I did do some interviews. I did do an interview with, um, um, Bob Grease, who is, um, you know, that's another story unto itself. Uh, Bob Grease was the minority owner, owned 43% of the Browns, the Cleveland Browns, when Art Modell moved the team. But his father had um, had put up money, seed money, um, to start not only the Rams franchise, but um, but the Browns franchise. So, um, and, and in fact, I've got a book in development now about, about Art Modell. And, um, and so it's interesting that, that this family, um, he's still here in Cleveland, very approachable, uh, very nice people. You know, you would never think that they had this hi- history, um, but they um, um, uh, that th- they were the family that actually provided the seed money for what are today the Rams and the Ravens franchises. You know, and as, as I'm, I'm beginning to write one of the introductory chapters today, worth collectively about oh six and a half billion dollars. You know, so that was a fascinating interview. Um, Bob is uh, 90 now. He was 85 when I interviewed him, and. Um, uh, and so he, he was a great interview. Uh, another one that was really good was uh, Buck Waterfield, and he's the son of Bob Waterfield and also Jane Russell, the adopted son. And he in um, when I, I visited him, he lives in California, in Santa Maria, California. And so I went out there and um, went to his house because he had told me he said, "Hey, you know, my he said my um, my grandmother really kept a lot of scrapbooks of uh, you know from Bob's time." He said, you know, you're welcome to take a look at this. So I went out out there, my wife and I, and, you know, he very graciously, he and his wife pulled out these two or three giant scrapbooks, you know, which is brittle from the thirties and forties, you know, and and said, Hey, you know, just knock yourself out. You know, if you, if you guys want coffee or something, but we'll, we'll leave you alone. So it was great. So my wife and I are paging through these, these scrapbooks and, and then one little kind of card popped out and it was like, it was a scout for the Chicago bears. And and that's literally what it said on the card. And I was like, so I asked, I asked Buck, he said, I'm not, I'm not sure what that is, you know, but apparently Bob, when he was in high school, he was 17 or 18 years old. He had already been, he was already getting scouted by the NFL 
uh, had already been the Chicago Bears already had him in his sights so, to the point where a scout actually like, gave him his card. So he just kind of kept it through it like a, whatever in a drawer in a, his dresser as a kid or whatever. But his his mother, of course, kept it in a scrapbook. So that, that was a great interview as well. And just to see all that memorabilia just firsthand, you know. Yeah. Talk about a really cool, uh, I don't know, golden nugget that you found in the middle of that you didn't even expect to find. Oh, it, yeah, it almost kind of just fell out of the scrapbook. It was like, wow, what like, what the heck is this? You know, so yeah, it was, it was just fantastic. You know, old clippings, old photos, you know. Bob, Bob Waterfield was an incredible athlete, you know, if, if you ever knew anything about him. He was, you know, he was one of the original gymnasts at Muscle Beach in Santa Monica, you know. Just his son remembers him walking around the house on his hands and stuff. And um, so just kind of, you know, endlessly fascinating story. So as I talked to various families and I talked to four different families for this, you know, for this book, and they're all very welcoming and it, it's it's so integrated into their family's histories, you know? And so what this, be, uh, coming out of this book was almost, it, it felt like almost a kind of a family, you know, a, a family uh, recollection, you know? Yeah. Must've been some cool, interesting conversations of just nostalgia for, Anytime they get to talk about theirs and for you as well. And uh, speaking of that, we're going to kind of leave it with the teaser for your next book that's coming out. And we'll definitely have to uh, let everybody know when that's out on the on the stratosphere. But for them to be able to get a hold of you or for them to be able to learn more about your work, what would you suggest to a listener of the show? Oh, if they want to reach out to me, um, for sure, you can go to my website. Um, it's it's cleerams.com. And uh, you can find my address. My email address is on there, my bio and information about the book uh, by all means. And in fact, um, any if, if any anybody listening has recollections of Art Model, I would much appreciate that. As I mentioned, uh, in development now, I've been kind of hemming and hawing doing this book. Um, but it seems like a fitting, a fitting book, you know, bookend to, to the to the Rams book. The Rams book takes you pretty much from 1920 up to about just on the doorstep of when the when the Browns were sold to Art Modell. So to take, you know, Art Modell now from here, 1961, takes you almost up to the current day. Um, so that's why I'm writing the book. But I, I am collecting, um, you know, anybody's recollections. So if they have any recollections or thoughts about what it was like and they recall when Modell left and what they're, you know, what it might have meant to them. Um, I also have another website that's called modellbook.com. And by all means, you're welcome to, to drop things there. I'm going I'm, to, I'm, I'm setting the book, the Modell book up, unlike the Cleveland Rams book, which is more kind of a straight ahead um, history book. This one is going to be a little bit more from the fans voice, a little bit more from, from, you know, the fans, the politicians, people who were here in Cleveland, they saw firsthand what happened. Um, because the story, the true story of what happened when the Browns left, as you might expect, is not always the story that the NFL tells or that Art Modell told. <laughs> there you go. Now you know the real story of the, uh, I mean, well, uh, now again, Los Angeles Rams. I hope you enjoyed hearing about this forgotten story. And to get the whole story, well, I really do recommend that you check out the book over at sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash Cleveland Rams. Other than that, Keep learning about sports history over on the network, too. But for now, dude, I'm through if you're through. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Football History Dude. To make sure you're the first to get the next episode, please subscribe on your podcast player of choice and head on over to thefootballhistorydude.com for the show notes and more information on the history of the NFL. And remember, dudes, where we're going, we don't need roads. Hey there, sports history fan. This is Arnie Chapman, 
aka the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. This is Mark Mortier, and if you're a sports history fan like me, tune in and hear me talk about some great sports moments of the past. Growing up during the 1970s, I got to watch some of the most iconic moments in sports history. Hank Aaron breaking Babe Ruth's home run record. Willis Reed limping out of the locker room in Game 7 of the NBA Finals at Madison Square Garden as the fans erupted with a thunderous ovation. The 1980 Miracle on Ice as Team USA defeated the powerful Soviet Union in the Olympics. Listen every Tuesday on Yesterday Sports. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.